let's have some fun and it is going to be a blast of a show because we have well we have an anti-communist joining me about an hour and a half from now one of my favorite anti-communists his name is james Lindsay. he is one of these guys who is so well read on communists and communism and the comparisons between what we've seen old and today i'm excited for this one that's an hour and a half from now we're gonna talk some joe biden We're going to rewind on things like coronavirus from the very beginning. We're going to talk, honestly, we're going to talk about New York City and the NYPD and hospitals and problems coming, not just for New York, but for the United States of America and why these problems are coming. We're going to have your phone calls tonight on what you're grateful for and what you're having for Christmas dinner. I'll read some emails. It's going to be a blast. But first... Let me ask you something. Have you ever heard of Pavlik Mazarov? Or also known as Pavel Mazarov? You ever heard of him? Well, let me explain. He was born in Russia. He was born in the early 1900s, actually 1918. And Pavel Mazarov was one of these kids who was just super, super sharp. And remember, 1918, that's you know about rough Russian Revolution time when it went from being Russia to the communist Soviet Union. And this Pavel Mazarov, as a child, he just he not only shows how sharp he is, but really showed an incredible, incredible loyalty to communism in the Soviet Union. This was at a time where they were trying to put communism out there. And remember, we know it now because we have all the books and we have movies, we have everything else. They didn't even know what communism was back then. So there was a lot of there was a lot of misconceptions. They didn't know how it was supposed to work. And this was at a period in time when guys like Stalin were killing a lot of people. Mainly people called the Kulaks. You'll hear that word before. It starts with the K. The Kulaks. Who were the Kulaks? The Kulaks were the upper middle class or middle class farmers. You see evil people like Joseph Stalin. Evil people will find a group of people in their own society, not separate people, a group of people in their own society, and they will tell all the rest of society, you see them? You see those kulaks? Those are the people responsible for all of our problems. Why isn't this working? Kulaks. Why isn't that working? Definitely the kulaks. Kulaks this, kulaks that. Not only did they round up and murder the kulaks or march them off to gulags, it was illegal for you to even help a kulak because the kulaks started to get worried. I mean, these were people who owned some land. They were getting worried. Uh, a lot of my friends seem to be dying. I think I need to leave. So you needed a passport. You needed to get out of town. You had to leave. Get out of there. So back to our child by the name of Pavlik or Pavel. He was a committed communist. In fact, he joined a heavily pro-communist group early on in school. He was a brilliant student, a genius young communist. And then something happened. He found out that his father, his own father, who lived right there in the home, it was him, his father, his mother, his little brother, he found out his own father was selling passports and getting illegal documents to the Kulak. Well, remember, Pavel was a committed communist boy, and he went down to the local authorities and immediately told them about his own father and got his father turned in, and they hauled his father away. But that's not the end of our story today. Pavel's grandparents found out about this. They lured Pavel and his younger brother out to the wilderness, and they killed both of them with knives and pitchforks. They found Pavel and his little brother dead in the woods a couple days later. It's very, very sad. It's just very, it's heartbreaking stuff when you think about it. And keep in mind, they wrote an opera after this kid. They wrote six biographies after this kid. They wrote songs and plays. If, if memory serves me, I believe there's even a poem out there. So this is, I mean, this is a, a hero for communism. 
except nothing I just told you is true, and they made the whole thing up. The, the kid, they finally started digging into it. The kid may have existed. There may have been a Pavel, but he was an idiot if he did exist. His dad was long out of the home. None of what I just told you is true, and yet millions and millions and millions of Russians would weep as they sing songs about Pavel. Why? Well, the communist has always understood propaganda. He's always been better at it than you've been. He's always been better at it than I've been. The communist has understood people need heroes. People need heroes. They need someone to look up to. They need someone to lionize. Why would they make something up? Well, they needed somebody to encourage others to turn on and turn in their own family members. Why not create this lion of a young man? They can't even agree. If you go start looking it up, they can't even agree what he looked like. No one seems to know. Why doesn't anyone seem to know? Well, if you were a writer and started digging into the story, you would get a phone call. Or if you were really unfortunate, a knock at the door. And it would be the KGB saying, ah, yeah, you're done looking into this now. I bring this up because I saw something on social media today, and I've seen it a bunch, and I know you've seen it a bunch too. This creation of a story out of virtually nothing, maybe out of something, but out of virtually nothing that reaffirms the communist worldview. And I'm not going to go into the specifics of the story. The guy's like, I was, I traveled to rural towns and everyone in these rural towns was wearing masks and they were talking about how great the vaccines were and they loved Joe Biden and I don't see anything. And of course, none of that's true. I mean, you can look at a congressional map of America. Rural America is blood red. And I mean, blood red. You're going to have a Democrat sprinkled in here or there. But rural America is really, really, really red, and urban America is really, really, really blue. And those divides just continue to go. Look at New York's a great example. New York's a great example. Look at New York City and the way New York City votes. And then look at upstate New York. Upstate New York, I mean, people dog on all of New York because, oh, a bunch of liberals. Upstate New York might be the reddest part of the country. And I mean, they are blood red up there. But back to my story. This happens time and time and time again. I know you've seen these things before. It happened definitely all the time during Donald Trump. My three-year-old came to me today, and she wanted to know, is Donald Trump going to kill us because we're Latino and we sobbed together? And I mean, of course, none of that's true, right? It's not just Juicy Smollett and the fakeness. This is something that seems to happen with American communists all the time. Constantly creating this worldview that's not true at all. And so you look at it whenever you've seen these. I know you've seen these before. Whenever you see them making up these tales, this has happened to me a lot. I look and I think, isn't that embarrassing? I mean, everyone everyone can see what you're doing. Everyone, even your friends, know uh, that's a complete lie. Why would you make something up? But you have to remember, and I have to remember, this is how communists have always been. American communists are no different. They make up their own stories of brave young Pavel every single day. Because if you're trying to rip apart and remake the world, well, you're going to have to break some eggs to make that omelet. You're going to have to tell some gigantic lies. And this, more than anything, it drives home to me how truly odd this religion is in the history of mankind. And there have been some weird religions out there, right? I mean, some very, very weird religions. We worship rocks or whatever the case may be. But communism has to be one of the most odd ones because communism stems from a complete belief that all of reality is wrong, so you have to remake your own. I think when we deal with things like Rising crime. Why are prosecutors turning criminals loose across New York? I mean, everywhere. Chicago, San Francisco. Why would you do this? Why would you do that? Why would you do this when you know it's going to hurt? Why would you have open borders when you know it's going to hurt the country? Why would you do this in Afghanistan? Why, 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 why? 
we have to understand we're dealing with something completely abnormal here. We're dealing with people who will not just tell a lie. They'll tell big ones again and again and again and again and again, and they'll tell it without hesitation, trying to remake the world into something awful. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. There are two aspects to the question of the legitimacy of the last presidential election. One is, was there cheating? And Well, there are three questions. Was there cheating? Did the cheating enable Joe Biden to win? That is to say, without cheating, he would not have won. And third, is cheating the only question that honorable people can ask? In light of that, I read to you from the wonderful Molly Hemingway at The Federalist. J6, that's January 6th, hysteria is how media and other Democrats are avoiding accountability for their rigging of the 2020 election. Rigging doesn't mean that cheating was done in the count. Rigging is rigging. Follow. Tech oligarch Mark Zuckerberg, one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful men, spent $419 million, nearly as much as the federal government itself, to interfere in the government's management, the government's management of the election in key states. Powerful tech oligarchs and corrupt propaganda press conspired to keep indisputably important news stories, such as allegations of corruption regarding the Biden family business, hidden from voters in the weeks prior to voting. Information operations were routinely manufactured about President Trump in the closing months of the campaign including the false claim that Russians paid bounties for dead American soldiers, and Trump didn't care, and that Trump had called dead American soldiers losers. Both were disputed by dozens of on-the-record sources. In other words, the staggering amount of interference by the wealthiest Americans, specifically Mark Zuckerberg, in tipping the scales of the election toward the Democrats, the lies that the media engaged in to defame President Trump, the lies of omission that the media engaged in to defend Joe Biden, they're pretty important. Effective conservative voices were censored by the social media, the arms of the Democratic Party. And all this was done after the establishment spent years running an unprecedented resistance, quote-unquote, that falsely claimed that Trump was a traitor who had colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election. With the exception of a single Time magazine article admitting there was a conspiracy by a well-funded cabal of powerful people who worked to change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information to create a revolution in how people vote, corporate media have largely kept silence about or downplayed how the establishment secured its victory for their man, Joe Biden. The media and other Democrats have used the January 6th riot at the Capitol as a way to ignore legitimate concerns about what they did to the election system and as a way to continue the assault on election security. As part of the political operation, they have used the propaganda technique of redefining efforts to secure the integrity of elections as attacks on democracy. Don't you hear that all the time, right? They're trying to suppress the vote and attack democracy by trying to keep elections simply honest. The 2020 campaign to destroy election security by flooding the system with tens of millions of mail-in ballots was run by Mark Elias, a braggadocious Democrat attorney and former general counsel for Hillary Clinton, who also ran the Russia collusion hoax that seriously damaged the country. 
In fact, one of his partners in this scheme was recently indicted by Prosecutor John Durham for lying about his role in the hoax. Elias and his, quote, well-funded cabal of powerful people, unquote, are hoping to make permanent or even expand the weakening of election security. The propaganda press have also downplayed Zuckerberg's staggering $419 million of expenditure or falsely presented it as nonpartisan, nonpartisan help to voters. Independent researchers have shown that the funding dollars overwhelmingly poured into Democrat counties. No right-wing billionaire, my last paragraph. No right-wing billionaire could have gotten away with even thinking about such an operation. But had he, the media would be all over it. A few hundred thousand dollars in Russian Facebook ads for both Clinton and Trump generated years of hysterical media coverage from the corrupt press. Yet Zuckerberg funding the private takeover of elections to secure Democrat victories has barely been mentioned, much less obsessed over by most corporate media. That's the issue. There's no more election day. There's election month, election two weeks. Tens of millions of ballots are sent to people who didn't request them. This is all phony. This is all a way of rigging elections. This is not a way of having more honorable elections. It's a way of having more Democrats elected. So if you're ever asked, do you believe that there was an honest victory for Joe Biden, you can say in the counting there may well have been even though I do believe that there was cheating. But it may not have been dispositive. I don't know. You can say that. But you can also say it was rigged. And it is continuing to be rigged. The whole lie about suppressing the vote, asking people to show an ID, can you tell me why the Democrats are opposed to an ID there, but everywhere else in society, everywhere, You need to show an ID. It's not even just contempt for blacks that it's too complex to show an ID. That's what they say. There's no other possible inference to be drawn. The Democrats consider blacks, well, they have contempt for black. The, The left has always been racist, and it continues to be the single greatest racist force in America. The contempt for black people on the left is profound. They can't they can't even add properly, so we'll change the laws of mathematics. I mean, if that isn't contemptuous, then the word should be struck from the vocabulary of the English language. Blacks will find it too difficult to show an ID. Watch Ami Horowitz's film in Manhattan, interviewing blacks on the street, most of whom, I presume, vote Democrat. Do you find it uh, difficult to show an ID or to get an ID? They all laughed at him. What are you talking about? They even told him where the DMV office was, near where he was interviewing them. What, What was wrong with Election Day? Really, what was wrong? People were inconvenienced? One day in two years or one day in four years to be inconvenienced? To vote? To exercise that precious right? That's the reason people might be inconvenienced? Make more polling places. Staggering throwing around of trillions of dollars. I think we could build more polling places. I'm Dennis Prager, actually, the guy whose name you say when you press pound 250. I have more, but when I see a line that differs with me, it's like a magnetic attraction. So we go to Inglewood, California, and Art. Hello to you, Art. Uh, Dennis? Yes. I am uh, put put off and uh, also... uh, find it to be inaccurate that you would 
uh, be, uh, say that there are no racism in America today. I never said it in my life. I'll give you a thousand dollars. It's the least racist country in the United States. That's in the correct. World. Isn't that different from there's no racism? I have, I, I retract that. I'm okay, sorry. no problem. Uh, but there certainly is a great deal of racism in America today. I don't believe that. Really? Yep. Go, go, come with me in the any neighborhood uh, you like in this uh, country, and ask somebody. Go not door to door and ask them if they have ever experienced racism in their lives. Ever? That's yes. like asking me. Did I ever? No, experience... ask young people. No, no, I understand. Yes, young people. Fine. Ever is a big word. You keep changing it from there. It's racist country to did you ever experience racism? Have you experienced racism in the last year? How's that been? Yeah, that would be good. And then I would like to ask them how. Whenever I have asked blacks who've called my show, so tell me the last racist experience, it turns out that it may not have been racist, and it turns out right. that they don't remember. What was your last racist experience? I went into a store. Uh, I, 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 let me give you a better one, Dennis. I went into a, uh, I, I, it was in Santa Monica, California. And uh, it was nighttime. A cab came along to pick me up. As soon as I opened the door, they saw I was black. The cab just dashed, man, just gone. Hmm. So why do you think that is? Because he thinks blacks are inferior? Because he doesn't like black money? Why do you think he did that if he did that? Because I'm black. Right. Because and why do right, you're not answering? Some sort of threat. That's right. Is, is, that, is that a foolish thought? Would he take? Would, let me ask you a question. Would he have driven away if you were a woman, a black woman? I, I have no well, idea. What do you think? I, I what do you think? I believe that you'll tell me the truth. What do you think? Well, what do you think, then? I think he would not have driven away. A lot of people are scared of black men. It's a tragedy, but if you read any news reports, you will find that if there's a school shooting, it's probably a white. If it's a random shooting in a street, it's probably a black. Do you believe? Do you believe, Dennis, that, that we are all equi- uh, born equal? Of course, we're all children of God in His image. Right. Then, what is the reason behind this discrimination? Well, what you you mean about why a cabbie would drive away with a black male? Because people are rationally or irrationally afraid of a lot of single black males, depend and it depends how you were dressed. Were you dressed? How were you dressed? I had a, I had a suit and tie. Yeah, it's bizarre that he did it. I must admit. Uh, can I, I ask you I, one I, last question? Dan? Of course. Yeah, have uh, you experienced anti-Semitism in your life? No. I don't huh? You don't believe it? Okay, there's nothing I can say then. I, I you know. So why did you ask me? <laughs> You're not going to believe my answer. I have. Uh, I. This is a. I can tell you a cute story, but it's very illustrative. My grandfather came from uh, Eastern Europe, where he experienced daily Jew hatred. It's a much more effective word than anti-Semitism. And so he came to America, and he assumed America was like Eastern Europe, Russia, Poland, and so on. So I remember when he would drive a car, and if a guy would cut him off, he would mumble, anti-Semit. And I remember thinking, I was like 8, 10 years old, how the hell does Papa, that's how I knew him, well, I don't think I used hell, how does Papa know that that guy's an anti-Semite? How would that guy know even that my grandfather was a Jew? He didn't cut him off because my grandfather was a Jew. He cut him off because he was a rude, selfish driver. If you want to see hatred, bigotry, racism, anti-Semitism in America, you will find it. Sexism, the whole, the whole nine yards. I have not walked through life looking for it. I had a friend from Canada, rural Canada, visited me in New York City, where I lived until I was 25. We went to a, a camera store when such things used to exist. 
And as we left, he goes, boy, I really Jewed him down. And I remember thinking, that's an ugly phrase. But my friend's not an anti-Semite. Whereas another Jew would have said, oh, that guy was an anti-Semite. I'm not saying every Jew would say that at all. But another Jew might, by caller, might. I didn't think he was anti-Semitic, even though he used an anti-Semitic term. If you say, I was gypped by the dealer, are you anti-gypsy? Not necessarily. There was a phrase when I was a kid, oh, you're an Indian giver. If you take back what you gave somebody, does that make you anti-Indian? Go Dutch. Does that make you anti-the Netherlands? So, my friends, my caller lives a sad life, walking around thinking whites have it in for him. Well, they don't. Here's the, here's the kicker. Not only have I never experienced anti-Semitism, I never met a white racist. You would think among whites I would hear a fair amount of anti-black bigotry. How come I don't? Or as this wonderful young woman who I had sit in for me, Julie Hartman, who has looked through my mail on a number of occasions, she noted, God, how come there isn't a single email to you in the thousands and thousands that expresses racism? Not one. Hey, everybody, Dennis Prager here, and I'm going to go straight to my guest. I've had on often. He has made a preview video. He's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Andy Puzzler, Fox News uh, economic analyst as well. And, uh, hey, you know, nice to see you. This is a new... Uh, you too, Dennis. New addition to the uh, Prager show is seeing my guests. Where are you right now? It's one beautiful room. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I'm in, in my study... This is where I do most of the TV and uh, other Skype and Zoom meetings from. So you set up your own lighting? I did. Everything's all set up. Cool. You're, this is great. It's all on my iPad, by the way, I, which is incredible to me. Yeah, isn't that? Isn't that it's, it is. The whole thing's incredible. It really uh, is. Uh, technology is the best example today of a blessing and a curse. Because yep. the kids who get addicted to their phones is a bad thing. You know, the video games, on the other hand, that we could do this, and I have access to so much information. It's blessings and curses come together. Anyway, uh, so, by the way, Andy, are you now a regular columnist at the Wall Street Journal? I'm sorry, say that again? Are you a regular columnist at the Wall Street Journal? Well, I would say over the past, uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine years, they they run you know, probably eight to ten articles I write a year. So I, I guess I'm pretty regular. <laughs> yeah, because the guys who have an illustration of their of their face seem to be the columnists. Anyway, I hope it's true because you're you're terrific. All right, <laughs> well, so uh, let me talk to you a little about economics and other matters. How worried are you about inflation? Uh, I'm real worried about inflation. I don't think the Biden administration has any plan to combat it. They they can't admit that their policies caused it, and their policies clearly, clearly drove what we're suffering through now. They couldn't admit it was happening when it was happening, and they have absolutely no solutions to reduce it. So other than the Fed increasing interest rates, which is going to hurt everybody, but probably needs to be done. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times. I don't. I don't expect you to have read it. I read the LA Times. I live in LA, and because I'm, uh, I'm a martyr to my cause of bringing information to my listeners. But uh, uh, they said uh, the uh, the high gas prices have nothing to do with policy. It's only because of COVID. Yeah, you know, how could that possibly be? Look, they they there is a a concerted effort by John Kerry, which has been very successful, to get banks, large banks like Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, not Bank of America, not to lend to oil, uh, people that are in the oil or gas business. Now, for the big companies like Exxon, you know, they can probably get by. But for the smaller companies, the independents, the people that are out there fracking, it's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly risky. 
And if they don't have the resources to, uh, to, to the financial resources to do the drilling, it significantly reduces our ability to maintain our, our energy independence, which we gained under President Trump. If we lose that, we're dependent on other countries for oil. When we're, when we're tapping into the supplies available in other countries, we're driving up the demand for oil worldwide. Oil is priced worldwide. It's not just priced in the United States. We were the third largest energy exporter in the world prior to COVID. If we don't get back to that, if we reduce the supply and we increase the demand because we're trying to tap into that supply, prices are going to go up. That's exactly what happened. Nobody should be surprised by this. Even Larry Summers predicted this was going to happen. And, you know, Larry Summers and I often disagree, but I don't think he's stupid. And back last March, he said, if you enact these policies, you're going to see massive inflation. The Biden administration ignored him, and we're paying the price on food and on energy. Just a word on Larry Summers. I, I regard him as a liberal, not a leftist. And, and Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, so th- that's the... The liberals don't understand uh, that the left is destroying liberalism, but we conservatives do. So that, that's the battle in the country is for the mind of the, of the liberal. I did not know, and I, it's not, uh, I'm not proud of it, but I did not know about the lending. John, oh, yeah. John Kerry can pressure banks whom and whom not to lend to? How? Yes. And not only can he, but he has been. And, and it's been, I, I had a Wall Street Journal article on this about uh, maybe two, three weeks ago, uh, talking about how in Texas they had enacted a law that said that um, that if you didn't if you didn't uh, lend to, if you didn't support, if you refused to invest in the oil and gas sector in the fossil fuels industry, uh, you couldn't do business with the state of Texas. And that really cut these big banks out of about fifty-eight billion dollars last year. Uh, in municipal bond deals. So this year, if there were a, a similar number of municipal bond deals in Texas, which is a very fast growing state, uh, then these banks would be cut out of that. And that, that kind of woke them up. Uh, I think that if we can get more red states to take actions like Texas took, uh, we're going to see real progress in fighting back this environmental, social governance investment criteria uh, that's infecting, that's affecting really our entire free enterprise system, but in particular, the fossil fuel sector. So let me go back to my question then. How did John Kerry force, I don't know, Citibank to not loan money to energy companies? Look, there's a lot of pressure that Kerry can bring to bear from the government. I mean, he is Biden's um, what, is, what is I forget what his title is. He's their, you know, the climate uh, guru, the climate guy for, for Biden. Uh, and he carries a lot of weight in the White House. And he's going around to these banks saying, look, we've got control of the House. We've got control of the Senate. We've got the presidency. If you don't toe the line, if you don't get on board with this, uh, you, not only are you going to have adverse reactions from investors like BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard that build huge amounts of these public companies, even this, these publicly held banks, and they're all pushing this ESG investment criteria. Not only will you have pressure from them, but you'll have pressure from the federal government. So they all kind of threw their hands up in the air and said, all right, we're going to commit to this carbon neutrality by 2050 and try and convince everybody we're super good people. And in the meantime, we'll destroy the American fossil fuel sector. So what is the case with Texas? Did Texas prevail? Well, Texas passed this legislation. There's two parts of this. First, there's the part where they can impact the banks by saying, if you don't do business with people in the fossil fuel sector, we, you know, you can't do business with Texas. That's great. If you don't invest in fossil fuels, you can't do business with Texas. That's great. The problem is you've got these investment asset managers like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, that handle billions and billions of dollars uh, for the state of Texas and for other red states as well. And they will take the shares they own in oil and gas companies and vote them against the interests of the people of the state of Texas. For example, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street own about 21% of Exxon. Uh, when Ex- when a, a, a Exxon found a proxy contest coming from a, a group called Engine Number no. 1 that tried to put environmentalists on Exxon's board. Now imagine this is putting environmentalists on an oil and gas company's board, one of the largest companies, if not the largest company in Texas employs thousands of Texans, is very supportive of the oil and gas industry. 
BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard took their 21% interest and voted those shares in favor of the insurgent uh, company, engine number one, to put those, not only to put those uh, those environmentalists on the board of Exxon, which has had a tremendous impact on how Exxon does business, but also on some shareholder resolutions that were in support of these climate change, these climate change agendas, zero carbon by 2050. So it, it succeeded, Texas succeeded by getting these banks to pay attention and say, hey, you know, we're not going to be able to do business with Texas if we don't invest in oil and gas companies. However, these companies like BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard, the problem with them is they do invest in oil and gas companies and then vote the shares against the interests of the people. What, an, what so, animates BlackRock? I'm sorry? What animates BlackRock? BlackRock is run by a, an individual named Larry Fink. He's the CEO. And he and these other asset managers have really teamed up on these ESG investment criteria, the idea that they're going to save the world. Okay, so, uh, by the, so ideology. Ideology. Social justice and corporate governance. So they're they're run by leftists. That's that's the that's the answer. That is absolutely the answer. They are run by leftists, and red states better wake up quick because this is a big problem. This is a threat to the entire free market capitalist system, and I think people really don't need. It was the video I did for PragerU. I mean, this is a huge threat. My God, is it? All right, can you hang on? Sure. Right, I'll be back with Andy Puzder who uh, is on Fox with economic insight and really social insight, and the same with uh, Wall Street Journal. This is just another example of my constant, constant phrase, daily probably, everything the left touches, it ruins. And if you think that emergency measures in the name of COVID were something, wait till emergency measures in the name of climate. The Dennis Prager Show. Andy Puzder is on with me now, and uh, he is with the Wall Street Journal and with Fox News, specializes uh, in economics. You, you have a tremendous background in, uh, in, in economics, of course, and, and in business specifically. So how do you explain this, this incredible, destructive left-wing turn of so many people in business? Well, it's a little hard to explain. I think a lot of people become dependent on government assistance for their business. They all want to generate support from the government. Uh, they don't want to be over-regulated by the government. They want the government to buy into what they're doing as opposed to opposing it. Uh, so you, you, you find a lot of incentives for people to, uh, to comply with this sort of collectivist attitude. Uh, secondly, there's, there's a lot of pressure on businesses not to do anything that offends the left, because the left is very good at attacking people on the right. The left thinks they think collectively. They don't think independently. They don't they, people on the right. They just want to run their business. They want to run their lives. Uh, they want to be successful. They want to teach their kids how to be successful. People on the left have a kind of a group think. And when they come after you, if you're running a business, they can seriously damage uh, that business. Now, I, I have to say, I found uh, when I was running CKE restaurants that when I came out and said something that was uh, conservative or, or, or leaned right, it actually, and, and we got a lot of protests from people on the left, um, it, it actually would increase our business. It actually would help. Now, I, I marketed our company a little different than some other companies market theirs, and, and we were more of a, a, a we, we were a large brand, a national brand, but we weren't as big as McDonald's, Wendy's. Uh, or Burger King, Carl's and Hardy's are smaller, so we could kind of compete as the as the as the runner-up kind of uh, person. We didn't have to have this broad appeal. We could appeal to a particular segment of the population and do so effectively. But I think businesses get a lot of pressure from the left, uh, as far as consumers who, who who gang up on you. They get pressure from the government, uh, and they get pressure from government regulatory agencies, from the bureaucracy. Finally, let me say one other thing. I think what people are people become successful maybe more easily than they thought would be the case. You know, you might take a Mark Zuckerberg, for example. Uh, they tend to think that they didn't deserve it. And uh, they want to look like they're very generous people. I don't see Mark Zuckerberg giving away the bulk of his fortune, but he wants to appear as a very generous person. And so they will they will do things to try and make him appear that way. And I think part of that is to go with these collectivist uh, leftist ideas. 
Look, the fact is, and I, I've said this to my listeners for years, big business is not our ally. And and that flies in, well, let me ask you, do you think that flies in the face of basic capitalist theory? No, I, I think small businesses are our right. ally. They're, they're the, the best, right. yes. Agreed. I think uh, the, the big businesses become very government dependent. You know, the larger you are, the more you're, you know, like, any of the car companies, how dependent are they on the government for subsidies to try and get their products on the market? If you can sell it, if a Tesla can undersell, you know, a Chevy because it's using, uh, you know, electric, uh, it, it, it's, even though fossil fuels are creating the electricity, it's an electric uh, run car as opposed to a gas powered car. Uh, then people are going to be trying to do the things to make the government happy so they can get those subsidies and their cars cost less because that's how you compete. So the more the government becomes involved, the more government picks winners and losers. That's right. The more government is subsidizing business, the more you're going to tend to see businesses going towards leftist, collectivist type activity. And that's even true, though, under a Republican president. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, it, it, it's true across the board. So elections have no effect on big business being left wing. Well, you know, the, what, one, the one election that seemed to start to make a difference was Donald Trump's election. I think Donald Trump was so disruptive to the system. I think this is why you found that in not only 2016, but with, with great venom in 2020, uh, that not only the mainstream media, not only the Democratic Party, not only unified everybody on the left, because Donald Trump came in and really put the lie to everything that Barack Obama and Joe Biden had been saying about the economy, about what would work for the economy when Obama was in office, that you needed government, you needed government help, government built that, you didn't build that, uh, we needed government regulation. Trump came in, wiped all of that out immediately, and the, and the, uh, the economy soared. The labor, labor numbers were the best we've seen in my lifetime, wages went up, inflation was down. Everybody was working. Uh, poverty was reduced more than it had ever been reduced and reduced for children more than it had ever been reduced for children. So you really saw Trump coming in and changing the dynamic. Companies were had to come back to America. You didn't come. You didn't treat America fairly. You didn't treat us fairly. You were a globalist. Well, guess what? We weren't going to treat you fairly either. So you started to see a change with that election. But, you know, when we elect people that are more establishment Republicans, and, I, you know, I may end up supporting an establishment Republican in the next election because whoever is going to be better than Kamala Harris or Joe Biden. But if we get a real mover, changer, shaker, mover in office like Donald Trump, there's tremendous resistance on the right to the extent that they probably did things in the election. Uh, certainly the media did things during the election that they wouldn't have done in any other election and been able to get away with it. But they were all so adamant that Trump be defeated because he was going to bring down their entire globalist economy. Uh, that uh, and they won. Uh, they won this, but who knows? He may be back in 2024. We may have a another very very solid candidate who could make changes. But it's going to be tough to find somebody that would implement changes dynamically as uh, President Trump did. You know, I interview a lot of. Uh, I mean, I interview the finest minds in the country, but very few am I in such total agreement as I am with you. <laughs> I, I, it, it's just just the way it is. Anyway, good to hear. Uh, yes, well, we're, we're, you're out fighting, and so am I. Andy Puzder, thank you so much. Thank you, Dennis. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. That's what he did, Donald Trump. He disrupted. I didn't know there was such a, a deep state till then. I didn't know. I, there's so much I didn't know until the last few years that I'm. I I will admit I'm a little embarrassed. But I have to be transparent with you. I trusted doctors till the last two years. The dishonesty of the major media throughout the Western world is arguably the greatest source of the crisis of the Western world because people are fed falsehoods. In terms of omission as well as commission, as much omission, I'll, just, I'll give you a recent example, and then I'm going to go to my guest who has made a preview video on the New York Times. Just now, you should look up how many mainstream papers, as they're called, Washington Post, New York Times, L.A. Times, CNN, 
Well, CNN did. Jake Tapper, I played too, and I and I did it because I want you to know that any time the left does something honest, I will bring that to your attention. But uh, almost none of your liberal or left wing relatives know what uh, what Justice Sotomayor, Sonia Sotomayor, said about a hundred thousand children being in the hospital for COVID when the number is 3,500. 100,000. Her perception of what is happening is because of the New York Times, which I have no doubt she reads daily, and CNN and the others. She lives in a fake world like the entire left does. Here's a great test. Ask Every single one, not controversially, not in an attack, ask every liberal relative you have or friend. Did you did you happen to catch what Sonia Sotomayor said about kids and COVID? My guest is Ashley Rinsberg. He's an investigative journalist. Did a magnificent uh, video that is up now at PragerU. And let's see, what is it titled? Can you trust the New York Times? Ashley, congratulations on the video. Thank you, Dennis. It's a uh, it's a spectacular video, and PragerU did an amazing job. So, thank you. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. Where are you? Where am I talking to you now? I'm in Israel, at home, just outside of uh, Netanya. Oh, so Central Israel. so where? What country were you born in? Born in South Africa, Johannesburg. Oh, why didn't I guess that? <laughs> an investigative journalist on American journalism living in Israel, born in South Africa. Okay, I got it. Anyway, it's, it really is a, a, a d- delight to talk to you. So I'm going to play for uh, everybody just the, the opening of your PragerU video, and then we'll elaborate on the New York Times and its most recent errors. Back in, uh, I'll back with you in just a moment. So here, here, here you are. The most influential news source in the world is the New York Times. Every day, hundreds of newspapers and TV and cable news stations around the world follow its lead, literally. Why wouldn't they? Isn't the Times the gold standard of journalism? The place where the facts of the story are presented without bias or agenda? Actually, the answer is no. When it comes to episodes of major historical significance, the New York Times has routinely failed to provide the public with unbiased journalism. Instead, it has chosen to manufacture false narratives, often with catastrophic consequences. It has done this in service of its own financial and ideological interests. This goes back at least to 1932. Okay, all right. So we'll talk about 32 uh, in a moment. That's the beginning of Ashley Rinsberg's a video on on the New York Times. Tell the story of their firing an editor, not even a columnist, an editor, because he published a Republican senator. Yeah, that's um, it's it's a topic I cover in the book actually, because this you've got this environment at the Times culturally that is so radicalized, has become so radicalized over the last five years or so that they couldn't stomach. I mean, this is this individual's name is James Bennett. He was a very senior editor at the New York Times. He was highly regarded not just by the New York Times across the media as a liberal stalwart. We're not talking about a, a right or center right person right. here. We're talking about it, you know. A, a liberal guy. Um, and he published an op-ed by Tom Cotton, um, in which Cotton calls for using the National Guard to quell the riot slash protests that took place um, last summer. And that was just in, in, intolerable to the New York Times' newsroom. Um, there was a, a upheaval, a, a walkout by hundreds of Times staffers and he was eventually fired for his transgression of having a a war hero and I, I believe a Harvard-trained lawyer, um, senator, contribute a piece to the New York Times. And they fired him. 
fired him. They they had his back for a, a few days, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of were running this line about uh, free expression and an open exchange of ideas. And then when things got too hot for them to handle, he was out. So All right, that, I'm gonna, that was pretty I, I, summarily. We'll be back. I'll be back with you in a moment. Ashley Rinsberg, the uh, the video, and, and of course we have to, to uh, mention the book, uh, very important about the New York Times. Hello, everybody. Ashley Rinsberg, his current video up at PragerU on the New York Times. And he has a, an important book, really important book, the Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. My sense, Ashley, is that uh, things are actually getting worse at the New York Times. I gave the example just this week with Sonia Sotomayor's absurd statement a grotesque distortion of reality saying 100,000 kids were in hospitals uh, for COVID when it's the number is about 3,500. So I looked up, did anybody report this? And we got Jake Tapper said it on CNN. And finally, the New York Times reported it in one sentence in the bottom of an article in a series of articles in a daily COVID update. One sentence. If that, if it had been the other way around, uh, if let's say a, a a conservative justice had said, you know, there's virtually no one in the hospital today for COVID, it would be major headlines in the New York Times. Do you do you agree with this assessment? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we see um, on a micro level, like with this case, even though this has big ramifications, just as we saw it 40, 50, 60 years ago or more, for example, with the Holocaust, doing the same exact thing with with the Holocaust and an historical episode of major significance where they would bury stories just in that same manner, back of the paper, maybe a couple inches about, you know, a million murdered Jews in Europe. And that's a tactic. We, we kind of think of it as an oversight, but it, it's not. That's giving them a little too much credit. It's intentional. It's deliberate. It's part of the editorial process. When Bennett was fired, their own editor, because he published the Republican senator, I read, and tell me if you know more about this or if if this simply resonates with what you know, it was overwhelmingly young New York Times staffers who pushed for him to be fired. That's also what I've read, and that is probably the case. But it kind of leaves out one piece of the picture here, which is the New York Times' audience. Their audience of subscribers who they're hoping will pony up monthly for 20, 30 years to come are younger, woker, more millennial than they have previously been. They are sort of creating this new audience and cultivating that audience, which is more radical, more zealous, and less likely to be in favor of of the kind of centrist compromise that America has traditionally been built on. That's why we're seeing such radicalization at the paper itself, because they are chasing the money. They're, They're following the dollar with that. And it might be a sound business strategy, but from the point of view of gathering facts and bringing the truth, it doesn't exactly work. So do you think, and I don't want wishful thinking here, just do, do you think that except for the left, that the reputation of the New York Times is lower than it's ever been? Absolutely. I think that Times used to be an American institution. I think people who even were uh, not ideologically aligned with them respected them, respected the reporting, knew that whatever the foibles might be, whatever the problems the management, the ownership had, that there were a lot of great reporters there in the newsroom uh, manning the operation. Today, we're seeing that shift play out in real time where part of their desire to follow that younger, woker audience means finding a newsroom that's in line with those expectations as well. And the real problem there is that part of the woke movement or, or, or something that's very core to it is this idea that whatever is whatever gives us more power is true. 
rather than the other way around. We've typically thought of truth being power. They look at it as power being truth. And that's exactly what we've seen with the 1619 Project, where whatever helps our ideological aims is by definition true. And we're seeing that reflected in, in the New York Times newsroom today. Wow. So I, I infer from what you say that they are building a young audience. I thought that they're in trouble in that regard. They are in trouble um, in large part, you know, because they haven't fully um, innovated and adapted in their in their space. But they are te are tempting to build a young new audience, an audience that they can rely on. Now that advertising is out of the picture for them, they're looking at subscriptions and they want long term subscriptions. They want subscriptions for from people who are in their 20s and 30s. Uh, who are going to be paying that that fee for the long term. That's where their revenue base will, will really come from. And they've been doing an okay job. Trump was a boon for them. He really drove a lot of revenue, a lot of subscription, like a lot of newspapers and news outlets on the left, they're now suffering from the lack of Trump. That's right. That's what I've heard. I'm curious, and you may not have an answer to this because it's not what you wrote about, but is the Washington Post more, less, or equally unreliable? You know, the Post, I haven't studied it as in the depth that I've studied the New York Times. What I can say is that the episodes where or the historical episodes of the Holocaust or uh, reporting on atomic radiation as a result of the bombing of Japan or a number of others where you look at the, the Times and you look at its great competitor to the Post side by side. And the Post never went as far down the rabbit hole as the New York Times did. The Post never covered up the Holocaust. The Post was actually advocating for a boycott of the Berlin Olympics in the 1930s, where the New York Times was just embracing the Nazi propaganda uh, with both hands. So, you know, historically, there's there's almost no question. The Post has been much more reliable. Um, the Times has really gone out on the farthest limb in order to advance its own agenda, where the Post at least had some modicum of hewing to the truth. And today? You know, today it's unclear. What we know is that uh, you know, the Post has deep pockets. It's owned by Jeff Bezos, right. the owner of right. Amazon. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, it makes them in a way vulnerable to the kind of leverage that the Times is vulnerable to, which is in a large degree right. um, the, the leverage of business and the leverage of China. All right. Because All right. Listen, I want to thank you and I want to send everybody to your book, The Gray Lady Weaked, and, and to your video at PragerU. Ashley, thank you. Closing time. My friends, I'm Dennis Prager. It's great to be with you. I wrote in April of 2020 that this was a dress rehearsal for a police state, and I was right. And police states rarely happen overnight unless there's some violent coup. So we have a gradual but very powerful movement toward a police state. We have not yet reached the levels of Austria or Canada or New Zealand or Australia or France or Germany or almost any European country. That's why I wrote last week my column that America remains a beacon of freedom despite the lack of freedom in the country compared to other Western countries. Look at Canada. Canada is a police state. It is. Uh, there has been in, in Canadian history, putting aside issues of its founding and its, and its treatment of indigenous peoples, there has never been a Canadian segregation and legal subjugation of a group like the unvaccinated. And they get away with it because the media lie to you about the pandemic of the unvaccinated. The vaccine turns out to be largely uh, a dishonest enterprise in that it's not a vaccine. Vaccines render you uh, safe from the illness. This does not do that. They have redefined, in fact, they literally, dictionaries are now redefining vaccine 
to protect you rather than, in other words, if you get the illness, you won't be as sick as if you would have been had you not been vaccinated. That's not a vaccine. By the way, if it does that, that's great. And if there are no side effects, it's wonderful. But there are side effects for many people. So my point about the police state is this. And that's why the this is the most important Supreme Court decision in memory. If we if the government can shut down businesses, force businesses to fire people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and have the government do so based on this quote unquote emergency, all they need to do is declare an emergency. And I promise you. I don't usually make predictions. I promise you that they will declare climate change an emergency. Wait till you see what they shut down then.